All right, for those who are going to remain in the sanctuary for the sermon, I want to invite you to open in your copy of God's Word to 2 Thessalonians. As we resume our study of this book, we are drawing, we're coming in for landing. We've begun descent as, uh, as we enter the final chapter, the third and final chapter of this little book. That is nonetheless very rich and meaningful for our salvation and faith. So today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes thus. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but thankfully, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this word. And we ask that in this time of reflection upon it, that we would be attentive and dutiful to it. Thank you for your faithfulness that inspires and motivates and informs our own faithfulness. Lord, be faithful now and meet with us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so today we are continuing, resuming our study of Second Thessalonians. And, and after a, a very busy week, at least for me, it feels like it's been longer than a week since we've been here. Um, so just as a brief refresher of, of where we're at thus far, but bottom line, this beloved congregation that he had founded in a very whirlwind trip through Thessalonica, this church had prospered and was blossoming and growing despite adversity, despite persecution, despite the onset of all of the trials and problems that beset humanity in a fallen world. All this stuff was coming together to make us a very stressful and tense situation for them. Persecution had marked the foundation of this church, and over time, difficulties had only increased. But coupled with the external and internal pressure, they had received falsified or erroneous or misspoken, whatever, wrong reports attributed to Paul that the day of the Lord was now at hand. And this had led to an, an, an eschatological sense of urgency. A, they, had an, they had a highly overinflated understanding and notion of the imminency of Christ's return. They were convinced that the troubles they were experiencing were the sign that the Lord was coming back tomorrow or something like that. So much so that people had stopped working. Why worry about bills? Why worry about groceries if the Lord is coming back before you need it, right? And so Paul wants to hit the brakes, cool their jets, so to speak, because what happens to a person when they are sold in on a hope 
and that hope doesn't get realized. When all of their expectations and dreams and they wither. There's this huge deflation that occurs. And they become disillusioned and jaded. And he didn't want that for them. He didn't want to see their faith implode, so to speak, as a church. And so he's writing to, to fix this correction. That, hey, guys, I realize the persecution has intensified. And you guys have done a commendable job of bearing up under it. Praise God for that. You have been so steadfast in the face of difficulty. But about these, about these false reports that the day of the Lord is at hand, man, that, that's just not true, guys. You see, the Lord won't return until these things happen. And so he automatically, by doing that, takes the foot off the gas. Hey, some things that haven't happened, that must happen, are still yet to come. But then he gives a glimpse of how things are going to be. And in the midst of that, it's a picture of the things that are. He gives them the two signs that are going to come, that must come. The great apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. And we see that these two things are the ultimate are the ultimate antitypes, they're the ultimate expression of types that we see manifest now, or what we see now are the shadows of substances that are there in an ultimate form to be revealed later. And so there's rebellion and apostasy now. And every time we see rebellion and apostasy now, we should be alert. We should be careful. We should be cautious. We should be attentive. There are antichrists now. First John tells us this. It's not a matter of debate. Anytime you see a person or a regime or an institution set itself up as the one in whom you are to trust, it's setting itself up in opposition and replacement to Christ, and it is the spirit of antichrist, the scripture tells us. And so anytime we see this, we are to be wary, knowing that they point to an ultimate and final manifestation. And we are to be on guard at all times because what is the ultimate power, the, the ultimate tool in the arsenal of Satan that, that feeds and pushes the rebellions and the antichrists and all that stuff? It, it's the power of deception. The power of deception is the, is, is the tool that makes us believe that we're seeing something grand that we're seeing something amazing, that we're beholding something wondrous when it's really an illusion, an illusion meant to keep us from the truth. But then Paul does something even more profound than share that insight. He gives us a glimpse behind the curtain's curtain. You see, there are times in life when we think that nothing is in control, that it's chaos. Have you had one of those moments where everything seems to be spinning and it doesn't seem like there's anything in control? Then there are those times when it feels like something evil is definitely in control, okay? But what Paul wants us to understand is even in those moments, the power behind the power behind the power is God himself. It is God himself who sends this great delusion upon the unbelieving world 
that they would be confirmed in their rebellion and hostility towards him. So the agency and power and will and choices and actions of Satan, which inform the, the actions and agency of, of wicked humans, are nonetheless being under the sovereign direction of God himself. So brothers and sisters, it is important to remember that in no case, at no time, at no place, is God not in control. And so when we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, as we looked last week, he is truly Lord. And what we think about his lordship informs how we understand the problems of the now and the troubles that we're told will come tomorrow. He never ever for a moment takes his hand off the wheel. He is in control. And it's that truth that informs what Paul does now as he, as he pivots. Okay, I've built you up. I've addressed this false report that's been attributed to us. Now, now in the midst of your life, in the midst of your context, it's time to get practical. Okay, so the first thing he wants to do is remind them, get their eyes off their own trouble, and he points them to his prayer needs. This is a helpful thing for Christians because we are prone to navel-gazing. People are prone to worrying and being so focused on their own problems that, that they forget that there's other things going on out there. And so what Paul does here is remind them of the mission, remind them of the playing field, and remind them of the confidence we have. And so it's practical now. He gives them something to do. He first succinctly identifies the challenge. He second calls them to action. And third establishes the ground of confidence. So three points. Some of you like that. The challenge identified, which is point one. Okay. The challenge or the problem, the difficulty, the obstacle, the thing that has to be faced, the thing that has to be addressed is articulated in verse two. In verse two, pray that we would be delivered from wicked and evil men for because as a, as a basis of unbelief not all have faith not all believe we have to remember that we're fighting a spiritual war and the basis of all the wicked actions that occur in this world the basis of the wicked actions that we commit the basis of it all always boils down to unbelief now, it's important that we don't just uh, give a trite dismissal of, of deeper causes because otherwise you can speak in such a, a vague level that it's not helpful in, in identifying behavior. You know, sin is the problem. That is true. But it's, it is important that we remember that unbelief is the root problem that we face. It is the fact that the promises of God are met with and challenged by the promises 
of sin. And unbelief, lack of confidence, lack of trust in the promises of God are what lead us to embrace and affirm and receive the promises of sin. So think back to the first lie. What did God say? Did he say you can't eat anything? No, he said we can't eat, but we can't eat this thing. He said we'll die. You won't die. You will be like God. Whoa. So he promised them something. Sin did. You will not die. You will be like God. So it challenged the promise of God. You will die. And offered its own counterfeit promise. And sin does that. And so we have to understand that the major chief issue we are facing in the world is not ignorance, it's unbelief. Unbelief is the root that leads to every manner of wicked and vile behavior. The word of life that invades the darkness and that is exactly how Jesus presents himself and the message of the gospel, the, the gospel of the kingdom in John, as an invasive, intruding force into the world of darkness. And the children of darkness hate the light because they love their wicked deeds. And like roaches, the light is almost toxic to them and they scurry from it. So it should make no surprise then that in a world that is fundamentally hostile, that there would be those who have an eruptive reaction to hearing the gospel proclaimed. We should note that Paul does not say, pray that I would be wise and know how to avoid wicked people. Pray that God would route me around them. Nor are we permitted to say, Paul, you can answer your own prayer. Just be quiet in public. Don't you know how rude it is to interject your religious beliefs in the public square unsolicited? Just preach in the church. You know, if, if you would just show up in church and preach and, and that's it, the world won't mess with you. The fact that he doesn't and the fact that we can't shows the mission we're on here. You see, the challenge is that there's unbelief in the world and that there are dangerous people out there that, that we need God's protection from. But nonetheless, nonetheless, we are called to engage the world. Paul is called to bring the gospel to all nations. We are called to forward advance the kingdom of God into enemy territory. And this means direct confrontation at times. And so this is what Paul does. He will not back down. And so after identifying the problem, he gives us our call to action, which we see led off for us in verse 1. When Paul says, pray for us. Praying isn't the only thing we're supposed to do. 
but I dare say it's the first and most consequential thing we do. It's a spiritual battle we're facing, a spiritual war we're in against primarily spiritual forces. And if it's true that the principal problem is unbelief, do you see how prayer is our first and most powerful weapon? Because in an unbelieving world, prayer is a complete waste of time. I mean, if you think about it, from, this, from the mind of an unbeliever, what, what are you accomplishing when you pray? Nothing. You've wasted your time and you've, 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 you've articulated expressions to the air. To an unbelieving world, prayer is foolish, it's folly, it's a waste, it's wishful thinking at best. Which is why, in a spiritual war, it is the first and greatest weapon. Because it is the evidence and the fruit immediately of a life of faith that says, you know what, I know there are spiritual forces and realities that I cannot see, but they're real. God is true. God is here. You are, you are not just the thing that's opposed to me. You are enslaved by a spiritual force that makes you inclined to be hostile to me. And praying is the expression of the life of faith. So do we pray? Do you pray? I don't just mean for your supper or as a, or, or, or I don't, I, for the devotions, but do you actually pray? Do you seek God's face in your time of difficulty? Do you seek God's face in your time of joy, in your time of sorrow, when you're, when you're going through hardship and heartache? Do you pray? In the midst of trouble, it's the thing Paul asks for. He doesn't say, hey, send me some money. He doesn't say, hey, send me some people. He says, send up some prayers. Okay? And he prays two, he, he wants prayer for two things. And, and we see that the focus here is on the mission and the mission succeeding much more than the missionary. What's the first petition he wants them to pray for? That the word of the Lord. He prays specifically about the advancement <coughs> of the gospel, of the word of the Lord. And this petition is in two parts. First, he prays that it would run ahead, that it would speed along, it says, but, but the imagery here is like a, like a horse in a, just an open field, just, just, just galloping at full speed, unhindered by any weight or obstacle. Run ahead. He wants the gospel to advance. Just, just go. Go, gospel, go. And the second thing is he wants the word of the Lord to be honored to be received and recognized for what it is, the authoritative message from God. <coughs> and then he presents them as an example of what it looks like when that happens. And only secondarily, in verse 2, does he pray that they would be delivered from wicked people. That sense of priority is important. It's not accidental. He prays this way continually. And it's not just that we should parrot his prayers. It's that we should notice his emphasis. That the emphasis he has, his priority, is not so much on being delivered, 
his priority is that the gospel advance. And so we see Paul later, right, that he's in chains, but the gospel is not. The gospel is free, and it's going forth. And so we should pray for the gospel's advancement in all situations, in all contexts. <clears throat> I'm sorry, these allergies are getting to me. So the call to action is a call to pray. Pray for the gospel's advancement and the deliverance of God's servants. Because God's servants do matter. We're not just fodder for the fires. No. God's servants are the means by which the gospel goes forth. But the gospel, once it's been proclaimed and received, it can spread. So pray and go to action. <clears throat> and then Paul gives us the confidence that is warranted in the face of a wall of opposition. That confidence is based upon the faithfulness of God himself, which we see in verse 3, when he says, but the Lord is faithful, and this is juxtaposed against the faith faithlessness of the masses. So the world and its forces are aligned against you, brother, against you, sister. <coughs> the world and its forces have no faith or confidence in the Lord. They are not committed to his rule and reign, but the Lord Jesus is. The Lord Jesus, he is committed. He is faithful. Now, faithful to what? Well, he's just faithful as a characteristic, but specifically he's committed to his name, to his word, to his when we say to his word, we mean to his promise that he will save all those who come to him and not one will be lost. He's faithful to build the church. He's faithful to effect sanctification, spiritual growth and maturity in the life of his people. He is faithful to restrain the worst impulses of men that the kingdom may proceed. He keeps the devil in his chains. Our Lord is faithful. And so he will establish you and guard you. He will do it. His sovereign rule and reign is true. And so in the midst of what appears to be a mountain of trouble, we can nonetheless run vigorously Pursue our mission and ministry with enthusiasm because he who called us is faithful and will bring everything to its appointed conclusion. So Paul, he's optimistic. He's in going through the same kinds of troubles they are. And he's optimistic because he knows that the ground of our motivation for service, the ground for our motivation for continued endurance in the face of trouble the ground for our continued service in a world that opposes the very service we're trying to offer. The ground is the faithfulness of Christ himself to build his kingdom. He will do it. Amen. Let's pray.